We have two scripture passages tonight, an Old Testament scripture passage and a New Testament scripture passage. Our Old Testament scripture passage is Genesis chapter 22, verse 1 through 19. It can be found in your Pew Bible on page 31. Before we read, we pray. Heavenly Father, bless the reading and preaching of your word. Enlighten us by your spirit that we may see in this how deep, how wide is the love of God for us in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Hear now the reading of God's holy, inspired, and infallible word. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham. Here I am, he replied. Then God said, Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and saddled his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac. And he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father Abraham, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and wood are here, Isaac said. But where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. When they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God, because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up, and there in a thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and you have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies, and through your offspring all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. Then Abraham returned to his servants, and they set off together for Beersheba, and Abraham stayed in Beersheba. James chapter 2, verse 14 through 26 is our New Testament passage. Pew Bible, page 1882. What good is it, my brother, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, go, 
I wish you well. Keep warm and well fed. But does nothing about his physical needs. What good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by what I do. You believe that there is one God, good. Even the demons believe that, and shudder. You foolish man, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture is fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. You see that a person is justified by what he does, and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. As for the reading of God's holy word, may he bless it to the hands, hearts, and minds of his people. We're looking at Article 24 in the Belgic Confession. It can be found on the back of your green Psalter hymnals on page 80. Article 24 is entitled, Man's Sanctification and Good Works. We believe in our hearts and confess with our mouths that this true faith, being wrought in man by the hearing of the word of God and the operation of the Holy Spirit, regenerates him and makes him a new man, causing him to live a new life and freeing him from the bondage of sin. Therefore, it is so far from being true that this justifying faith makes men remiss in a pious and holy life, that on the contrary, without it, they would never do anything out of love to God but only out of self-love or fear of damnation. Therefore, it is impossible that this holy faith can be unfruitful in man. For we do not speak of a vain faith, but of such a faith which is called in Scripture a faith working through love, which excites man to the practice of those works which God has commanded in his word. These works, as they proceed from the good root of faith, are good and acceptable in the sight of God, for as much as they are all sanctified by his grace. Nevertheless, they are of no count towards our justification, for it is by faith in Christ that we are justified, even before we do good works. Otherwise, they could not be good works any more than the fruit of a tree can be good before the tree itself is good. Therefore, we do good works, but not to merit by them, for what can we merit? Nay, we are indebted to God for the good works we do, and not he to us, since it is he who worketh in us both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Let us therefore attend to what is written. When ye shall have done all the things that are commanded, you say, we are unprofitable servants. We have done that which was our duty to do. In the meantime, we do not deny that God rewards good works, but it is through his grace that he crowns his gifts. Moreover, though we do good works, we do not found our salvation upon them. For we can do no work but what is polluted by our flesh and also punishable. And although we could perform such works, still the remembrance of one sin is sufficient to make God reject them. Thus then, we would always be in doubt, tossed to and fro without any certainty, and our poor consciences would be continually vexed 
if they relied not on the merits of the suffering and death of our Savior. And that's the teaching of the confession. Not too long ago, uh, a phrase uh, became part of the mainstream conversation uh, when, at the time, uh, President Obama mentioned about his running mate's Vice President Sarah Palin um, that you can't put lipstick on a pig and it be anything other than a pig. Phrases like this have been uh, with humanity for some time. And the idea is it doesn't matter how much you dress up a pig, it's still a pig. And this is important to our conversation tonight because, in a very real sense, Martin Luther had a similar statement about what it means when we are justified. He said, our justification is like a snow-covered dunghill. Martin Luther is quite flavorful with his language. He said, the work of justification It's like Christ, his work, his goodness, covers us, we're the dunghill in this, with snow. And so even though the inside is a big pile of manure, we're covered. We're covered in snow. It's sort of like lately, you know, Uh, All this beautiful snow was covering everything, even on the highways. But now that it's all melting, it's just that ground, you know, the brown junk with all the uh, trash that was stuffed underneath it. Not as pretty, right? But the question that I have for us is, is our salvation really like snow covering a dunghill? Or is our salvation really like putting lipstick on a pig? See, I think this is part of the picture, but it's not the full picture. And the way that I would put it is, our justification is like, in a sense, putting lipstick on a pig, but our sanctification is turning the pig into a beautiful image bearer of God. Our justification is like snow covering the dunghill, but our sanctification is like the dunghill transforming into a beautiful Christ-like person. So that's what we're talking about tonight. Snow-covered dunghills and lipstick on pigs. Our theme this evening is we have been justified... And are being sanctified. Not sanctified. 
by our union with Christ. We have three points tonight. The first is we're going to talk about regeneration. What does that mean? And what is its connection to sanctification? The second point we're going to talk about the difference between dead faith and living faith. And the third point we're going to talk about what good works are and why we do them. Just so you know, when I write this again, I'm just going to put what and why, okay? Let's start with this first point. Regeneration and sanctification. I know these are big words, but they're words that our confession actually uses, so we need to understand them. And this is important, too, because later on in theological history, regeneration came to take on a different meaning, and so its use here in the Belgic Confession has often confused people. But I want to start with this concept of regeneration and its connection with um, our Old Testament scripture passage, Abraham, and then the way that it's used um, in James. So Abraham, in Genesis chapter 22, very famous passage. It's his testing. Um, it's his test where God calls him to sacrifice Isaac. Despite the fact that this is a, a type, this is a foreshadowing of Christ's sacrifice, number of things point to this. First is that uh, Abraham put the wood used for the burnt offering on Isaac's back. Isaac carried it up the mountain. Uh, another thing is Isaac said, where's the lamb for the burnt offering? And God said, or Abraham said, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. Another thing that points to this is that in Genesis 22, when God speaks to Abraham, he uses a very particular phrase concerning Isaac, his son, your son, your only son. And because, of course, this is connected to Jesus Christ, um, God's son, his only son. But whosoever should believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. Not only that, but then as soon as the angel tells him to stop, there is a ram with its horns stuck in a thicket. Very illusionary to the crown of thorns placed upon Jesus Christ, their Savior. And many people even say that the mountain, Moriah, the phrase, on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided, is the very mountain that Christ was crucified outside the city of Jerusalem. That thing, that's pretty amazing. Back to this, though. Genesis 22, Abraham's test. The question we have to ask ourselves is, is what Abraham's doing right here, what is credit to him 
as righteousness. I forgot how to spell righteousness. Is this what is credited to him as righteousness? Now, James chapter 2 seems to point to that. But if we understand the character and the nature of salvation, of regeneration, uh, then we understand that what happens here is in Abraham's testing of his faith is the validity that what kind of faith he has is a living faith. And we'll get to that. But what exactly is regeneration? What exactly is this concept that Article 24 speaks of? When it describes true faith that is wrought in man by the hearing of the word of God and the operation of the Holy Spirit regenerates him and makes him a new man, a new person, causing him to live a new life, freeing him from the bondage of sin. But this is not only a New Testament understanding of salvation. Ezekiel chapter 36, God, the prophet, through the prophet, proclaims this wonderful and beautiful truth about the salvation that he was promising to his people. Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 26. Very well-known passage that I'm sure many of you know. Speaks about the nature of salvation and regeneration. God says, For I will take you out of the nations, I will gather you from all the countries, and bring you back into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from your heart of stone, from you your heart of stone, and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. This is something that Jesus himself picks up in the Gospels, particularly John 3. Jesus speaks of the nature of salvation and regeneration by the Holy Spirit when he's speaking to Nicodemus. Jesus declared, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he's born again. And how can a man be born when he's old, Nicodemus asked. Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. And Jesus answered, I tell you the truth. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless he's born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the spirit. Regeneration is a creation of a new man, a new life. So how does this relate to what we've already talked about, right? A snow-covered dung pile. Well, that's because justification is an instantaneous occurrence. The moment one puts true faith in Jesus Christ, they are justified before God. There is therefore now no condemnation. 
but the idea of sanctification. It's a process. A lifelong process. So the article says, therefore it's far from being true that this justifying faith, right, that makes men remiss in a pious and holy life. The idea was that if you say you're justified by faith alone in Christ alone, if you say that all people have to do is believe, then what you're going to create is a bunch of people who are going to go on being unpious and sinful because they realize they got to get out of jail free card. I got a get out of jail free card. All I got to do is say, tip my hat to Jesus, and I can go on with my sinful, self-absorbed life. Article 24 argues against that. Because Guido Debris is saying, the writer of the, the author of the confession, the very nature of salvation in regeneration, the changing of one's inner person from someone who hates God to someone who loves God, from someone who despises Christ to someone who wants Christ. The very nature of true salvation is that it's not something that ends with justification. It's something that begins with justification all the way through sanctification, going on into glorification, and that sanctifying work is an ongoing process. So, if someone says they have faith, on the contrary, this true and living faith, without it they would never do anything out of love to God, but only out of self-love or fear of damnation. The argument there is, if you tell people they have to do works in order to earn salvation, they don't do it out of love for God. They do it out of self-love in order to look good before others. Or they do it simply out of a fear of being damned to hell. Not out of a true desire to serve, to glorify, to make great and well-known the living God. So because salvation itself includes this concept of regeneration a making of a new man, the, the, the stone heart being taken and a new fleshy heart being given, the idea that we are born again of the spirit, that we are, 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 are in our second life, a new life, means that someone is going to change if they're a Christian. They're going to change in a Christ-like way. Yes, we've been justified, but we are being sanctified because we're united to Christ. So, moving on then to the second point. <coughs> Living faith and dead faith.
This is what James is really speaking about. When he talks about faith and deeds, faith and works, and the relationship between them, what he's talking about is the difference between a living faith and a dead faith. This is a really important picture that James gives. The idea of a Christian brother or sister coming up to you. They don't have any clothes. They don't have any food. And all your warm Christian greeting card loveliness. You say to them, go, I wish you well. Keep warm and well fed. But you don't do anything for them. What good is that? And then he says, in the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. Can such faith, he's contrasting kinds of faith. Can such faith, is it a living faith? Is it a dead faith? And he's not talking about the horizontal relationship between God and us. He's talking about the vertical relationship between man and man. How does one know that you have a living faith, a Christian faith? They don't know it if they come up to you starving and in need of clothes and you say, go, be warm and well fed. But you don't clothe them or feed them. Then he says, someone will argue. Someone will argue with him. You have faith. I have deeds. Show me your faith without your deeds. And I will show you my faith by what I do. You believe that there's one God. Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. The demons have a dead faith because they believe in God. They can quote scripture. They're better theologians than most of us. But they're not going to be saved from the damnation that is awaiting them. You can have a faith that is a dead faith, not a living faith. You can have a so-called faith that is void of what the confession and what the scriptures talk about in regeneration, in sanctification, and being made a new man with a new heart, a new creation. Right? And this is where we get into the contrast about Abraham. Because a lot of people get this wrong. He uses Abraham as an example of someone who has living faith. And the moment that he uses to describe Abraham having living faith is Genesis 22. He says, was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? Of course he was considered righteous for what he did by believing in God. Hebrews 11 even says that this moment that Abraham had where he offered his son Isaac to the altar uh, for, to sacrifice was, it, was, a, was, a, was a foreshadowing of the resurrection. Because Abraham believed that God could give his son back to him from the dead. 
And in a sense, he did receive his son back from the dead. You see that in this moment, Abraham, Genesis 22, his faith and his actions were working together. And his faith was made complete by what he did. His faith showed by what he did that he had a living faith. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Hold on. Is that where we read Abraham believed God and it was credited to him in righteousness? Genesis 22? No. Genesis chapter 12, when God makes a covenant with Abraham, Abraham believed God and his belief was credited to him as righteousness. And so what Genesis 22 shows us is that that belief that Abraham had in God's promise that God would make him a great nation, God's promise that through him all the nations would be blessed, God's promise that he would have this land, the land of Canaan, God's promise to Abraham that his descendants would be like the sand on the seashores and the stars in the sky, even though he had a wife who was barren, that belief that Abraham had that was credited to him as righteousness was shown to be a living faith when God tested it. When God said, Abraham, sacrifice your son, your only son. And that's why James says, you see that a person is justified. Justified not in the sense of justification, justified before others by what he does and not by faith alone. Do your actions line up with the faith you proclaim to have? Do your, not always, obviously, but do your actions show that you have a living faith and not a dead faith? That's why the confession says, these works as they proceed from the good root of faith. Oh, moving up here. Therefore, it is impossible that this holy faith can be unfruitful in man. For we do not speak of a vain faith, a dead faith, but of such a faith which is called in Scripture a faith working through love, which excites man to the practice of those works which God has commanded in his word. These works as they proceed from the good root of faith are good and acceptable in the sight of God, for as much as they are all sanctified by His grace. Nevertheless, they are of no account towards our justification, for it is by faith in Christ that we are justified, even before we do good works. Otherwise, they could not be good works, any more than the fruit of a tree can be good, for the tree itself is good. Living faith shows us that what we have in justification... And in sanctification is a salvation that is transformative. It means that, yes, we were a pig with lipstick on, but we're becoming more like Christ. Yes, we were a snow-covered dunghill, but we are becoming more like Christ. Our heart is changed, transformed. So what exactly then is the place of good works in the Christian life if it's not 
something that earns us a place, a position with God, if it's not something that we, uh, we do in order to earn our justification, what and why? What are good works and why do we do them? Well, the first thing that the confession tells us is, of course we do good works, but not to merit by them. Not to earn by them. The confession makes a very, very good point. What can we merit? Paul speaks to the church in Corinth and says, everything we have is a gift from God. And he makes this very good and very important part in this confession. It's something that we need to remind ourselves often. Because even when we talk about the attitude of gratitude, right? We can still have a debtor's mindset. I am so thankful. I am so grateful for the salvation that God has given to me. And so how can I repay but to live my life doing these things? The confession reminds us, according to the scripture, that in fact, even the good works that we do, we are indebted to God for them. For it is God who works in us. It's he who worketh in us both to will and to work for his good pleasure. That's why I think a better uh, reasoning that leads away from the debtor's mindset that we are still in some way, uh, by our good works, paying our debt to God is a dependent mindset. And I spoke of this a little bit this morning. The idea is, even in our regeneration, even in our sanctification, we are dependent upon the grace of God to do these good works. And so we pray like Augustine prayed. We say, God, command what thou wilt and give what thou command. You know why that is a good mindset to have, a dependent mindset to have? Because we glorify God when we give him all the glory for the works that we do. We glorify God when we say, God, I can't do this without you. You are the all-powerful. You are the almighty. You are the one who works in me to will and to do according to your good pleasure. God, I am dependent upon you for everything. And just as we are dependent upon God for our justification, we get no glory in that. It's all glory to God. The same is true of our sanctification. It is God working in us. So good works, what are they? They're an expression of our continued dependence Upon the God who saved us in Jesus Christ. They're 
an expression of our desire to give all the glory, all the honor, all the praise to God. Not simply for covering our dunghill with snow, but also for transforming this dunghill into a beautiful, wonderful expression of the image of God. The image of Christ Jesus. So that when we look back and we say, yeah, I was... I was still growing in Christ then, and we see where we are now, we don't go, mm, you know, I am pretty good at this Christian thing. But we go, thanks be to God that I am not the person I was. And thank you, Lord, that you have done this mighty work in me, and that you get the glory for it. I saw some of the most beautiful prayers are, Lord, I believe. Help me with my unbelief. Some of the most beautiful prayers are, Lord, help me to pray. Some of the most beautiful prayers are, Lord, I desire to love my wife and my kids. Please, Lord, work in me to be more loving, to be more kind, to be more generous, to be more patient, to be more understanding. shows that we are trusting in the Lord in everything that we do. Doesn't mean that these works are meaningless. We are told in our confession, the scriptures testify to this themselves, that we are rewarded for good works. But these good works are rewards of God's grace. And I want you to think about this. To me, this is amazing. It would be enough if God took us unworthy sinners just as what Christ said in his parable in Luke 17, we are unprofitable servants. We have done only which was our duty to do. It would be enough if God took us unworthy sinners and he saved us. And he gifted us with eternal life. And he gave us the privilege and the wonder of being with him forever and eternity. But God's grace is so abundant it's so exuberant and over the top and amazing that not only does he just save us, but he works in us to do good works and he crowns his grace with gifts. When you think of what the apostle says in Ephesians chapter 2. That famous passage, one that we often quote. It's by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not by works so that no one can boast. But you've got to keep reading because it says, For we are God's workmanship. 
God's very own creation. Created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Though we do good works, our confession says, we do not found our salvation upon them. We do not base our salvation upon them. Because Heidelberg Catechism tells us, even though we only have a start in this, even though our good works are still tainted by sin, nonetheless, we are new creations, we are new people, we are being renewed. We can't present any of our works as a reason for being seen right before God because they're still impure. That's amazing that God receives them in Christ anyway. I often think about that as the way I think about the Mona Lisa compared to the paintings that my little girls bring me. You know, sometimes we think that the good works we do are like the Mona Lisa. And we bring them before God and we're like, I did this for you. But in reality, <laughs> in reality, they're like those scribbles and those random paint brush slaps all over the place. They're like, thank you for bringing me this really messy painting and also getting paint all over the table and glitter on the floor. But God, he receives those and he takes a magnet and he puts it up on his refrigerator. And whenever anybody comes over, he says, look at this. Look at what my child did. Isn't that amazing? But we don't base our salvation. We don't base our confidence in these works that we do. Because if we did, we would always doubt. We would be tossed to and fro. We would say one week, oh, we're doing pretty good because we've done, uh, we prayed every day, we read the Bible every day, and we gave some money to somebody that we saw on the street the other day. So we're doing pretty good right now. But then the next week, you might stumble, you might miss, you might not do those things. And so your salvation, your confidence in your salvation is going up and down. No, we don't do that. We rely completely and totally not on our merits, but on the suffering and death of our Savior. We desire to live and step with the Spirit. And so we pray that God would do his work in us, that we might do good works for his glory. We pray that we, even though might have once been a pig with lipstick on it, we're beginning to look more like Jesus. Even though at one time we might have been a snow-covered dunghill. Underneath that snow, we're beginning to see a transformation taking place. We have been justified 
But we are being sanctified by our union with Christ based completely and totally in his perfect and complete work. And so I'd like to finish tonight by simply reading Galatians chapter 5, verse 13 through 26, that talks about this life of living by the Spirit. And then I'm going to pray. Paul said to the church in Galatia, You, my brothers, were called to be free. But do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. Rather, serve one another in love. The entire law is summed up in a single command. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you keep on biting and devouring each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. So I say live by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the Spirit and the Spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. They're in conflict with each other so that you do not do what you want. But if you're led by the Spirit, you are not under law. The acts of the sinful nature are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, and debauchery. Idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit that's being worked in us, we've been transformed, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. And since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking, and envying each other. Amen. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you that you've given us a salvation a complete and total salvation in Christ Jesus our Lord. You've justified us. You're sanctifying us and you will glorify us. And we can know this to be true, Lord, because your very own word confirms this promise to us as if it has already been completed. You tell us we've been justified. We've been glorified. Because if you have promised it to us, it's as good as done. So we pray, Heavenly Father, work in us to will and to work according to your good pleasure. That we may do good works for your glory, wholly dependent upon you and your grace. Always looking to the suffering and death of our Savior and his resurrection. That's the foundation for our salvation. And desiring to live in such a way that glorifies you. Because we've been changed. We want nothing more than to bring you glory. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. We're gonna sing.